So welcome into this special episode. I've got the lads from the Playing Footsie podcast, Steve D, Steve W. It's something we've been planning for a little bit. So to get it in at the end of the year is obviously absolutely amazing. Um, so first of all, welcome and on to how you guys are doing. Also your thoughts on the stock market from 2022. It's been a bit of a brutal year. How's everything going? It has been a rough year, hasn't it? Markets feel like they've been down quite a bit. I feel like this is a kind of comeuppance a little bit for what we had for the previous couple of years. And it felt like a lot of people who started investing, including me, in the last sort of three to five maybe years, had quite a nice time and perhaps thought this was all that ever happened. And, and this is, I guess, a reminder that stocks are supposed to have valuations. They're supposed to reflect the cash that the underlying businesses produce and that kind of thing. And they've just ticked a little bit closer to that in 2022. I was working out my portfolio returns this uh, today for this year. I hate it when people do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I did some money-weighted stuff, so none of this lumping it all in in December and then claiming that I didn't lose that much. Uh, but I'm down 8.5%, so I am comfortably in between the S&P 500, which is down about 20, and the FTSE 100, which is up. So anyone UK-sided is probably beating me. Anyone mostly US-heavy is probably losing to me. Steve, how are you? I'm losing to you, so um, <laughs> that will not be a, of a surprise to you. Um, I haven't done my money-weighted return, but I don't need it to know that I'm more than 8% down it's been uh it's been one of those kind of horrible years it's uh it's where it, i mean the crashes that i've been involved in since i've been invested have been rather quick they've been kind of over within a within a month or within within two months but this one's been one of those horrible slow declines where every so often you start to feel a bit more confident and you think right i'm gonna start to put a bit of money into things these things starting to look cheap so and then Two months later, you're down 20% again. There's been those little hopeful bear rallies where you think, well, yeah, maybe we're at the end here and it's it's just not been the end so far. We're, we're still not seeing the end. I think today we're probably seeing, uh, because yesterday, uh, which was Wednesday, was the, the last of tax loss harvesting in the US. So we're probably seeing a little bit of lighter selling pressure going into the uh into the new year, but I, I don't think we're at the end. I don't think uh, 2023 is going to go off with a bang, but Jacob, you got any thoughts on uh, 2022 and moving on to 2023? Yeah, I mean, I think what you were just saying there, Steve D, is that like, the, with 2022, it's just been that dip, hasn't it? That's just been slug, just slugging through that year, just going lower and lower and lower. And I think personally for me, I think I started investing around about 20, 20, 2016, and the only really dip that I had in that time frame was 2018, where it was just all in the back end of December. And I think it was like a 20% mm. drop then. And obviously the CV dip, but the, obviously with that dip, it was kind of a such a heavy drop, but it shot out the other side, you know, so fast as well. Whereas this year, we were kind of coming into the year thinking, okay, there's a few stocks that kind of got hit through 2021, but then through 2022, it was the whole market coming mm. down. And it, it, it just, you know, you, you think, okay, it's not getting any worse. It just get, you know, it just kept building on it. And th there was just more and more issues, wasn't there? There was popping up in the the economy, um, you know, political things that were going on in the background. And it just, you know, all built up through the year, didn't it? And it was just all, it just, it just all added up towards the end. And I guess it kind of leads you now towards, you know, 2023. How many of those issues are going to continue or which of those issues are probably going to get resolved and could we then potentially see a positive 2023 or to, to deteriorate and it ends up being even worse in 2023 so i guess that's the, that's the big question that we have now i mean it, it seems unlikely that it's gonna it's it, it's gonna carry on throughout the whole of 2023 i think the markets are really forward looking so the minute they get a hint that this is all over i, I sense that they'll start to price to price that in um the issue is really about inflation now. Inflation is a genie that they've got to get back in the bag. Uh, at the moment, we don't know uh, exactly. We can see it's coming down, but you know that could be a fake out. Uh, it could start going back up. Although I think on our prediction show on Sunday, we're we're all pretty much aiming at the fact that we think inflation is is going to come down to a, a target of between two or three, or a new target that the Fed says, "Well, we're happy with three, so that that might be the end of it." Um, what they what they're trying to do is get a soft landing so they're trying to get the interest rates up trying to get inflation down and trying to stop the us going into a recession which is like landing a plane on a pinhead uh one of us i won't say who has uh had a sort of a guess in the prediction show that uh power will actually be able to do this um but uh that was me by the way and i do apologize for that prediction <laughs> in advance but uh steve do you think do you think that's possible 
possible, yes. Do I think it's going to happen? No. I think what we're going to see in 2023 is more of the same. It's going to be grinding recession. Uh, Jacob mentioned since 2016, certainly, and probably since a bit before that, what we haven't really had is a proper earnings recession. What we've had is a bunch of short, sharp stock market crash things that have been immediately met with enormous quantities of QE, bigger and bigger quantities of QE that floods back into the markets and everything sorts itself out again, sort of fairly briefly. But that doesn't kind of last forever. This is being brought on largely by quantitative tightening. So it seems unlikely the Fed is going to, well, it seems unlikely to me that the Fed is going to meet this with the QE that would be needed to try and recover the markets back to the levels they were at quickly. So I'm looking for 2023 to be dominated by recession. The stuff that Jacob mentioned from this year, the political stuff leads me to, I guess the lesson I take from that is don't discount the antics of crazy people, uh, to be honest. And I mean that point seriously for what it's worth. There's a lot of people who are invested in stuff like uh, China stocks and so on, just based on the idea of, ah, but they won't uh, when they talk about the downside and, and they just won't do it, right? And honestly, if you'd asked me at the start of the year, would Putin invade Ukraine? I'd have chucked that in the, yeah, he'll never do that either uh, bucket. I'd have been absolutely wrong. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I'm looking for in 2023 is to not discount worst case scenarios too easily. I'm generally expecting a recession though. I mean, the Putin-Ukraine thing, I think even the month before I said that's just saber rattling and that's not going to happen. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a strange, a strange old scenario. Yeah, I was exactly the same. I said that's never going to happen. And then within a couple of weeks, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's suddenly changed things very quickly. Mm. And I think that was the, the sum of this year. You know, it was like, oh, inflation's not going to get that far ahead and it kept going up and up and up um so i think that's really this year summed up you think that you think you've got worst case scenario in and it just keeps deteriorating so i guess from what i picked up there is that i would say steve w is somewhere in the lines of it's probably going to stay somewhere the same steve d maybe a little bit more optimistic i would say overall well, I'm always optimistic because I learned quite early on that the stock market goes up more than it goes down. So if you are permanently bullish, you're going to be a lot more right than you are wrong. Yeah. So that is the reason why I am. Uh, that's why I'm usually more bullish than everybody else. Yeah, I think I'm probably leaning towards pessimism, to be honest. I'm not sure I think that in the long term that's a bad thing. But if I'm thinking about specifically what I'm looking for in 2023 as a dominant theme, I'm expecting this to be one of those down years where things sort of reset themselves a bit and the... The underlying businesses will do worse than they did this year in a lot of cases, mostly due to slowing spending. But I'm positive for the longer term than that, but I'm expecting this year to be a challenging one. Yeah. I think overall for me personally, there's two things that I'm staring at in 2023. I think first of all is the Fed. It depends what the Fed are going to do. At the moment, it seems like they're going to say they're going to keep these interest rates up quite high throughout the year we'll see what happens i think jerome powell wants to give himself a bit of room where he's not pressured into a corner of oh you said you were going to drop it you know towards halfway through the year and he then continues to hold them at higher rates and i think the other thing that would bring us more to a an 08 style recession that everyone is talking about is this coming or is it not coming i think it's jobs i think if you see at the moment you can have the consumer spending tighten and the economy can still hold up obviously not in a good position but it'll still hold up if jobs unemployment rises and that's a big difference between you know your income tightening and then total disappearing if your income disappears that's when you start seeing major issues in the economy that's when you have loans defaulting mortgages defaulting i think that's those are the two issues for me that i think will probably dictate where we go in 2023 well, it's one of the tools in the Fed toolbox, isn't it, is talking about interest rates um, because, you know, you listen to the last hike, uh, John Powell talked a really tough game. He was saying, look, we're going to continue doing this until until we we don't need to do it anymore. But what he did do is raised it by 0.5 instead of 0.75. So he talked as equally a tougher game, but he actually just took his foot off the pedal a little bit. So it might be a case of, you know, do what I do, not what I say, kind of thing. Don't know if that's the case or not, but it did seem like uh, it did seem like it to me. Um, you know, the Fed attempting to regain some credibility after losing credibility after the the the, the transitory uh, comment, which we uh, which we unfortunately bought into. Um, but yeah, I think it's uh, 
I think I agree with you. I think I, I think it's going to be a, a decent year for for us. I don't think we're going to get eight or ten percent out of the stock market, but by decent, I just think we could get between naught and five percent on an S and P return because they're pretty heavily beaten up. But it depends on. Um, at the moment, we're seeing a lot of tech layoffs. We're not seeing a lot of layoffs in the industrial sector. If we start to see layoffs in the industrial sector, yeah. um, I think we're in trouble because the Americans in uh, the US economy is not as exposed as the UK economy is in mortgages because they have 20, 25, 30 year mortgages. We have one, two, three or five generally. Um, so we have naturally all coming to the end of our fixed mortgages we're going to be exposed to a higher interest rate the americans are not exposed to that in terms of mortgages but they are exposed to it in terms of having loads of credit card debt and as we've seen recently loads of buy and i'll pay later debt as well which is obviously uh, is obviously going to go up as well so it's a different kind of financial problem uh, in america so um it'd be interesting to see how it all plays out one for your journal i guess just jot down what happens this year because it'll be a it'll be a learning experience definitely Mm-hmm. And I think that actually lines up perfectly talking about mortgages, talking about interest rates. Moving on to some individual stocks now, some UK house builders. Uh, personally, for me, I am very 50 50 on this. I was having a look the other day on Rightmove. And when I was looking at Rightmove, I was seeing a lot of houses starting to say, you know, reduced on so and so, reduced on so and so. Like, okay, we're starting to see some signs here. At the end of my street, a house just came up for sale. It came up for sale. I thought, I'll just have a quick look on Rightmove. You know, as you do, neighbours up for sale. Have a look on Rightmove. See, you know, what's going on here. House went up for sale. Two weeks later, it sold. And I saw the price it went up at, and I went, they're never going to sell that. And it, and it sold two weeks later. So I was firmly in the camp that we massively starting to see some signs of the UK housing market slowing down. And there is evidence that it's, you know, when you look at the latest data that's coming out, that it is slowing down. But I didn't expect to see something like that happen. Um, so going on to UK house builders, um, what are your thoughts here? Um, are, are you worried for the UK house builders? Are you worried for the UK housing stocks? Obviously, a lot of them are already being beaten down a fair amount. Uh, personally, for me, I, I do own one. I own Barrett Developments. Um, so I've had that one for around about two years now. Do you think there's more pain to come for these UK house builders? Are you interested in potentially buying any of them at the moment now they've been beaten up or is the pain still there uh so i don't own any of these and i'm probably not going to go buying them i like the look of their outlook for the long term for what it's worth which is to say that i am positive about the future of the uk housing market i think there's enough things that people point to in terms of structural shortage to offset a kind of low-ish birth rate that could do with being a bit higher but some immigration policies will probably help that to make me think that their UK housing market has some way to go. The way I prefer to um, manifest that thought in my investing life, I guess, is via Rightmove rather than uh, via any of the house builders that you mentioned. I quite like Rightmove. I think it's a great company. I think it's got an awful lot going for it. Uh, I can understand it a lot better than I can understand house builders as well. House builders will swing much more. They'll be much more exposed to cyclicality than Rightmove will. And I struggle to pick good from bad amongst these. I think in the short term, they're going to have an awful lot of trouble for the reasons that mostly you were kind of outlining house prices coming down, mortgage rates going up. Uh, I think people there's going to be a fair bit coming onto the market as people's mortgages uh, uh, kind of starting rates run off and people find themselves having to refinance at higher rates. And in a lot of cases, didn't realize that was going to happen because they didn't realize that interest rates are things that go up or were kind of historically low about two years ago. So I'm pessimistic on them for the moment, and I get the idea of wanting to buy them when they're low. The trouble is I don't know which ones are in serious trouble and can't make it through the next sort of year, 18 months, uh, unless something happens for them, and which ones are basically just beaten down but going to recover. At least that's true of the UK house builders, more on those, more on US ones in a bit, I guess. Steve? So I, I don't own any of the house builders, but I am in this sector. Uh, this is what I do for a job. So um, I'm sort of uniquely placed to look at these kind of stocks with a sort of a, an inside kind of uh, mentality. So they're all in a void for me at the moment. And, and we've set out why we think this is probably on our prediction show on Sunday. But I'll give you a quick take. Steve and I have a general rule that when you buy a cyclical stock and house builders are a cyclical um it's the wrong time to buy them when they look cheap. And that's because they've just exited a period 
where they've made a lot of money, uh, they've had a lot of government assistance, there's been rising house prices, there's been accommodative uh, interest rates, and yes, the material prices were high, which has stifled some of the profitability, but I think the new headwinds that are coming this year are much more severe. So I think 2023 brings a fall in the UK house prices, and this is bad news for the house builders, and, and I've guessed that I think it's going to fall between 8 and 10%. Uh, this isn't going to help the consumer at all, um, because we're already in a fragile economy in the UK, and I think the UK tips into recession. Um, interest rates, utility bills are going to really sting the consumer. Big purchases like a house are just going to take uh, a back seat as they wait for fairer weather. But I do own a stock in this sector. I own Forterra, the brickmaker. They make uh, the London brick, which is uh, one of the most popular bricks uh, in the UK. It's actually already in a lot of houses. Um, and I, <laughs> I managed to convince Stephen to thinking this isn't a commoditized industry because, unfortunately, when you do an extension, one of the first things you do is you get a brick match. So if London Bricks takes up a lot of, um, of UK bricks, the fact is, is that the only way you're going to get a brick match is to go and get more London Bricks, which uh, for terror are the only company uh, that can make and make in various shades and various different colours. So um, for terror is my play in this industry. I have it in my head from the last recession, the data that uh, people couldn't afford to move house. It was too expensive to come out, fixed mortgages and take on new mortgages. So what they did instead was extended the house that they were in. So I think we're going to see a rise in extensions from the people who do have some money left, the people who have money but don't want to move or can't afford to move or don't want to come out into a, uh, a more expensive mortgage. And I think they'll start to build extensions. And uh, I have Forterra as my sort of player on that sector. Mm, that's, that's actually a really interesting point of view. I've not actually heard anyone say that point of view before. Um, and... You look at, okay, if people are not moving houses, but they still want to somehow extend how they're living or in that time frame, they have, say, an extra child and they lose uh, a room or, or they need, need a bedroom and that sort of play where they, you know, they want to have that extra room, basically. Um, so really interesting view. Um, I've got, I see both of you, after you've spoken, uh, quite negative on, on the UK house builders for them for the time being, um, potentially further down the line. Maybe Steve W maybe a bit more potentially looking a bit further down the line at house builder potentially. I think that the the great thing that we have in the UK is that when you do look at the current houses we're building, I think uh, last year it was we built two hundred and sixteen thousand houses. And at the moment, I think it's estimated that we need 300,000. So you can see there's a big, mm. massive gap here between uh, the demand and what's actually being built here. And as long as there is that demand there, the government are getting probably more under pressure to make sure they are building, building the houses. So I think even if you take, I think at the moment, a lot of these house builders are now starting to price in potential profit declines, potential dividend cuts. I don't think they'll ever be in a position where the government couldn't afford to see a lot of these house builders, you know, going bust no. in that, that worst case scenario. And I think they would step in. And if anything, if there is going to be a massive slowdown in 2023, that demand is just going to get built more, up more and more. And if people are, you know, hesitant or resisting to, to move homes, that's just going to add to the demand that when we do see, if we see either price house prices decline or a slight drop in them interest rates, then you're going to have an even more build up of, of demand when that, you know, that we come out the other side. So we then set for a bit of a, if we are going to have pain, we're then going to have an even bigger boom on the other side. If you get what I'm, if, I get, if you get what I'm saying, hmm. so that's also one thing that I, I'm looking at as well uh, in the long term that might, might work out. Yeah, so this isn't like a this isn't like a Tory government failing. I noticed that that the the Labour government are saying that uh, you know it's Tories' fault. They haven't they haven't built enough in the last X amount of years. And this unfortunately isn't a Tory problem. It's been a problem in the UK for a really really long time, and it's because of something called NIMBYism, which I've actually found out is actually an acronym itself. Yeah, it stands, yeah, it stands for not in my backyard, and that's a problem we have in in the UK is that we we basically we we all agree that we want more housing yeah. and we need more housing. So long as they aren't building it across the way from us, that's absolutely <laughs> that's absolutely fine. So yeah, yeah. Um, if it's what, not in that field where you walk the dog, exactly. Don't and, in that um, field. So I guess that that 
I don't think any house builders going bust. Let 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 me just sort of put that out there. I don't think any of them are in that kind of. Well, I say that any of the big ones aren't going bust. Some of the some of the little ones are uh, are not doing so well. But I don't think I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Material prices have come down quite a lot. Labor rates are actually not that bad at the moment. So what I would expect these house builders to do is. Because the sales cycle has essentially doubled, I would expect them to build half as many houses, essentially, is what I'm thinking. So they'll probably make a little bit more money on each house to sell because material prices are going to come down a lot more than what the actual um, the price that they'll be selling them for uh, is going to be. So I would expect them to build a little, make a little on those, but I would expect the, the figures that we've seen in the last couple of years to look vastly different to, to the coming years. Uh, isn't NIMBYism basically your view on fracking, Steve? It's completely my view on fracking. Yeah, yes, that's what yes, I thought. Yes, the field is literally there. This, uh, yeah, yeah, the field is there, not in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> so, moving on from house builders to mm -hmm. another UK stock, um, a stock that I am a big fan of, and it's a stock that I don't really see it get too much attention. I think I've only ever heard it mentioned on a podcast called The Investor Way. Don't know if either of you listen to that yep. podcast. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, so that's the only place I think I've ever heard it mentioned, but it's a stock called Airtel Africa. Um, I think one of the big things that puts people off is potentially the name, but it's telecommunications in Africa. Uh, it's also, it also has a mobile money platform. Um, so it's, at the moment, it's doing really well from the mobile money part of the growth in Africa. Uh, the telecommunications, uh, there's obviously there's some data growth, voice growth, um, especially at the moment, the in Africa at the moment, there's the kind of mass um, adoption of 3G. Um, and now that's slowly starting to decline now. And now um, is a lot of uh, African countries are now adopting 4G technology, not any, even close to 5G. Um, and th they seem to be doing very well uh, from it, listed on, on the UK uh, stock exchange, obviously. Um, you guys ever looked into it? Had, had any thoughts on that one? I had a brief look at it, but it tends to be something where when I think about investing in this kind of thing, I think when I start buying Airtel Africa shares, I will have entirely given up on the idea of staying within my circle of competence, basically. This is, uh, I think, um, well, and it's not off the table. I mean, I've bought some pharmaceutical stuff before, which I absolutely do not understand well enough to be yeah. poking around in. But I haven't bought Airtel Africa. I like the idea of a lot of it in, in theory and in principle anyway. The growth in Africa, as you pointed out, is a huge driving force. I would love to find a way to be exposed to that, ideally with some sort of Western-based corporate governance built in because there tends to be a risk that it's not quite the same uh, level of auditing goes on over there. But I guess one thing that I sort of think is when I think about this, I think how to compare this and I think of Verizon, which I own for some time. And I think of two reasons I ended up going off Verizon. One was because I found it way, way, way too hard to understand in terms of mostly initialisms of stuff and technical things that I think are important somehow, but I'm not really certain how. And the other is that Verizon appears to spend an awful lot of cash on building out infrastructure. And it seems like everyone else basically benefits from it. So they build an awful lot of 5G infrastructure in this case. And the real winners are the people who shove things through 5G uh, spectrum rather than the people who provide it. So that's enough to put me off looking at Airtel Africa for the moment. It feels like it would be an awful lot of work on my part, and I'm not quite sure I see the the pot of gold that I'm digging out of this just yet. But I'm possibly the only person on this show who's too lazy to investigate that properly. So, Steve? Yeah, I own the stock. Um, I've got about 2% of my portfolios in Airtel Africa, so... I can give you a quick rundown as to why I bought it because I keep notes on everything I buy. Uh, these were essentially my notes on why I bought it. So um, looking back in the business history has a really strong history of cash generation. Uh, it pays out a 4% dividend. It's um, still growing both the top and bottom lines at a, a noticeable rate. So, so much so that the payout ratio is about 30%. So there's plenty of cash left to reinvest in themselves and pay down debt. Uh, in 2018, uh, the I was put off Airtel after it because it had a lot of debt. Uh, and it's worked really yeah. hard to bring that figure down. It had about six and a half billion at one point, and it's about two billion at the moment. Uh, it was a touch high for me. Uh, still, I'd like to see that continue to come down. Um, customer base is up about 8.7%. Uh, ARPU is up 8% this year to $3.20. So they've got more customers paying more 
um, which is always a good sign. We like that. Uh, growth, uh, most impressive growth thing for them is their mobile money. Uh, Africa not famed for its banking infrastructure uh, has leaned quite heavily on mobile money, which really funny. Uh, I must admit, I, I went on Airtel Africa's website once and I had a look at the mobile money and they don't advertise that very well because it's a dude in a tin hut on uh, <laughs> what they're saying. I think it, Hang on a second. This isn't like, you know, like library vans that we have going around giving like books in rural Africa, is it? But it turns out it's not actually. Uh, it's handling about $64.5 billion worth of transaction volume, which is growing about 37% year on year. Uh, this generates about $553 million in revenue for Airtel, uh, with about a 48% EBITDA margin as well. So this is good revenue. It's, it's good quality revenue. And, uh, they have mentioned that they want to spin this out and IPO it within three years as well. So I would keep an eye on that. Um, revenue up 23.3%, EBITDA up 32%. Note that this includes about 284 million of tower, uh, one-off tower sales. So, uh, Steve, did you want to do the risks or do you want me to do them? You're nope, on mute. I'd like you to do them. Okay. So yeah, uh, over half the stock's owned by Barty Airtel. $60 billion market cap Indian firm. Uh, its stock has a bit of an overseer, I guess. This isn't really making decisions for itself. Uh, it could push itself down avenues that benefit Barty Airtel, not necessarily me. Second risk I see is political risk. Airtel Africa operates in Africa. Africa has tons of uh, political uh, instability, uh, war, civil unrest, corruption, lawlessness. These are all big issues for Airtel. Uh, don't like the fact that they're uh, selling all of the towers. Um, I like them to keep control of some of their infrastructure and its upkeep. Uh, they're now not responsible for the tower or the upkeep, so it depends on what side of the fence you fall there. Uh, slight risk for me is that Etel Africa has hinted they want to be a cable layer. I hate cable laying. I wish they wouldn't get involved in that business. It's so capital intensive, and I don't believe they have the cash to do that in any kind of, uh, in any kind of big way. So uh, that means debt, which is something I don't want them to do. Um, market, I think, appreciates all of this because it trades at about eight times earnings. Earnings are growing about 30% per annum over the last five years. Uh, and the growth is expected to half next year to about 13%. But I think this is still good quality growth for a FTSE listed stock. So that's why I own it. I assume that's why you own it, Jacob. Anything you want to add on to that? Yeah, yeah. So for me personally, I've been owning this stock for around about two years. It dropped all the way down to like 30p, I believe, in the CV mm. dip. Uh, it bounced up to about 60p. Um, I bought quite a big chunk in, in that time frame. Um, the stock then went on a crazy rally. I think I was up over 100% um, at one point. And then it's had a bit of a... It's been a bit flat, having a little bit of a decline recently. Um, and I looked at it and I was like, okay, is it now time for me personally to start averaging up on that position? And actually, when I started looking at the financials point of view, is roughly sat, uh, on the valuation basis, on, on like an earnings basis, is getting towards the same levels it was at when I bought it back in 2020. And even though the, the, the share price has gone up so much, because the growth has been that uh, amazing on the business, the valuations are, are pretty, you know, where it was two years ago. And, and the big difference for me personally on Airtel is that, which you mentioned a bit earlier, Steve, is, is the balance sheet. The one thing that I was worried about was that debt. The, the debt was quite high. I think it was near towards maybe 90% debt to equity. It was high, high. yeah. Um, I think it's dropped down to maybe 50% now. So they are strengthening the balance sheet, which was the one thing that I was nervous about. Are, are you a are you a buyer at the moment or are you just a, a holder? Uh, well, I don't really like to allocate much more than... So basically in trading two and two, I, I have everything in a pie and I have like the max percent I want to allocate to and I very rarely go over that for the smaller ones. I've completely bollocksed it this year for Disney, Amazon, Google, um, etc. Like I've gone completely overboard of what I, I should normally buy for them. That is a rule I've not stuck to. But... Um, at the moment, I'm all right with about 2%. There's a few other positions I still need to flesh out a bit more. So, uh, But I could buy it. It keeps going down. It keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's on that list of many stocks that are doing that, though, as well, which is the tricky yeah, thing. No, <laughs> and that's the problem, isn't it? When Whenever you get any money in your portfolio and you think to yourself, right, I'll go and buy some Air to Africa, and you accidentally click on Disney or something, you think, oh, that's 82 today. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's... I, I, I've shown it to Steve. That's been a big problem for me in November because I think uh, November and December I managed to buy Disney on seven different occasions. So every time I had any money, I just kept buying Disney. Oh, well, worst <laughs> problems you can have, to be fair. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So th that's Air to Africa. Um, moving on to the next one, um, one that I know has been featured on the podcast uh, many times, uh, which is Facebook, or now known as Meta. Thoughts? 
thoughts on Meta at the moment? Um, obviously, it's been having a, a fair bit of pain, as a lot of other stocks have. Um, has Meta got to a point now where, or, obviously, I think what has concerned so many people has been the Metaverse spend, without doubt, um, and the, the profit drop-off in general. Any thoughts on, on Meta at the moment? I think people's concerns are pretty well justified, to be honest with you. Meta has yeah. more cash than debt, but if you're hell-bent on lighting that cash on fire, it might as well not have. So I own Meta. Uh, it's more than reached the point at which I started buying it. I started buying it quite a while ago, and I'm healthily in the red at the moment. I think this is a good example of a stock where when the news and sentiment is going against you, bad news gets magnified. Another good example is probably Tesla at the moment. So when markets are feeling positively towards you, every bit of good news gets blown out of proportion. When markets are going against you, every bit of bad news gets blown out of proportion. There's also worries about the EU and antitrust and the possibility that this could really clamp down on their kind of advertising data tracking model. Uh, I don't think that's the worry it's being made out to be, although I think it's a worry. Meta has been sacking people and trying to right-size its workforce. In fairness, so has everybody else in Silicon Valley from what I can see of it. I haven't yet heard much about where that layoff, bunch of layoffs is coming from. It might be that they're about to right-size their metaverse spend. It might not be that they're busy right-sizing their metaverse spend. So I'm treading kind of carefully around this. I heard a lot of optimism of people saying, good, they're finally going to stop losing money hand over fist on this expensive virtual reality, whatever it is and get back to just sitting there with a nice ad platform, which has loads and loads of users. The user base still remains pretty strong. It's fairly consistently quite high. It's stopped growing, but that might well be because they're running out of people in the world to grow into, to be honest. So they have a very strong ad platform. If they just sat there using that as a cash machine, everyone would be very happy. Or if they went and distributed it over a load of smaller things in the style of Alphabet or something like that. But lighting it all on fire in the metaverse hasn't been making investors very happy. I'm not sure that I think any of this news is that significant for Meta. I think it's all getting blown out of proportion one way or another. I think it's good value here. I own the stock. I'd buy it some more. Yeah, so I, I don't own Meta. And um, uh, it's just not... I'm, I'm not a Meta user. I, I I begrudgingly use Instagram because we have a playing FTSE account and I don't have my own account. I don't have a Facebook account. I suppose I do use WhatsApp, but I only sort of use it to tell work where I am um, and 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 tell my missus that the cat has laid on me for the first time. Uh, that's about that's about all I use it for. So I'm I'm not a huge. Uh, I'm I'm of the age where I still ring people. I'm one of those annoying people who wants to talk to you sometimes. Uh, so yeah, I'm not the uh, I'm I'm not an avid user of uh, of Facebook. But that that that's that's by the by. Um, Steve and I pulled up some data. Uh, it's a couple of weeks ago on our show, wasn't it? Where we we've since found out that Instagram uh, and Facebook, for that matter, are on a bit of a charge uh, in terms of. Uh, uh, in terms of app downloads, they've, uh, they're having some of their best ever months. So whether that is just people getting new phones or what have you, uh, it seems unlikely that it would all be that. Um, but in terms of being downloaded or re-downloaded, uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh, the meta family of apps, if you want to call it that, are doing exceptionally well. So, I mean, I, I see a there's a bull case for me here where I think the pressure is mounting on TikTok uh, at a government level, and I could see a case for uh, the government like just wielding the axe on something like TikTok. Which, if that happens, I think the next day Meta's up thirty percent or something like that. You know, I think it has a that would be a, a real benefit to to Facebook or Meta. I my big issue with the metaverse itself is that it's a lot of money and it just looks so bad. Everything in it just looks. So bad. I was. I think if you're spending that amount of money on it, I, I you know, I'd want to see something like Avatar in it. But I'm not. I'm seeing like I'm seeing like Minecraft, and I'm thinking that's a. It just seems like a lot of money for not a lot of results. And I don't think Zuckerberg's the right man to sort of tell me what what it is I want in that kind of uh, kind of program. And he seems to be taking a lead on it, which you know is 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 not really what I want. Yeah, yeah, and I think you were generous with the the Minecraft comparison as well mm. from things I've seen. Um, yeah, I, I think for me personally, I've been a, a shareholder in Meta from 2018. Uh, I bought in the when the Cambridge Analytica stuff happened uh, from that time period, and it had a massive drop. So uh, to be honest with you, the shares that I bought in that time frame, uh, I'm actually now down on them shares from 2018, mm. which kind of puts you into context like how, how bad that drop has been. Mm. Um, and I think the, the thing that spooked me, I've 
always been quite a big fan of Facebook and Meta because I think at the end of the day is when you've got them Instagram Instagram apps uh, and Facebook apps, they're still going to have active users and mm. especially Instagram is still going to be a very popular app. Um, even if you're not a big fan of it and don't use it, I think that there's a lot of people that just still want to go on it to see what people are doing, um, which you don't get with something like a TikTok. Uh, obviously, the, for me, I looked at the balance sheet, which is obviously really strong. Um, you know, they do generate good amounts of profit. But to see how much, especially in the last few earnings, that profit has been declining. And to see, obviously, the, the thing that Facebook and Meta are in now is that they can't really make an acquisition um, more than likely because, you know, the monopolies and, you know, the, it probably won't get passed through. Um, so they have to kind of do their own bets to kind of build up another income stream because it, we know Instagram and Facebook won't drive high growth forever, that the growth is going to slow the, the more than mature. And they do need to keep that, you know, or get a new income stream. Obviously, the hope is that Reality Labs is that income stream for them further down the line. My big worry in the last earnings report was to go through the filings and see that Reality Labs declined 50% on revenue basis. Now, I know this is not a story for where it's going to be next year, even the next two, three years. It's more about where it could potentially be further down the line. But for me, for such a big spend, I would hope to see some revenue improvement or if it was a decline, not a massive decline. And I saw the last earnings, I was like 50% decline on, on this major investment. And that was a bit worry for me to see that drop off in the profit. And then what are the rewards at the moment? And it, and it seems to be struggling. Well, I feel like you're going to see that coming up because um, I had a good look around at the MetaQuest in America uh, just a couple of weeks ago, and I, was, I sent a few bits of information over to you, Steve, about it was actually sold out in Target, in Best Buy, in Walmart this Christmas. So I think sales of the MetaQuest have probably done pretty well this Christmas. Um, the other thing to point out as well is that some of the bad news in the last earnings report was because a lot of people have switched off um, standard Instagram advertising to move on to the sort of Reels platform and Facebook had not properly monetized that Reels platform and, and now they have this will be the first full quarter of fully monetized Reels so I think some of that uh, some of that disappointment that was in the last end's report it should subside but you just you just don't know with this I mean you, you just don't know what Zuckerberg's going to have done do you or what he spent some money on or i mean i fully imagine his office is full gold by now because i just can't imagine how you can spend like billions and billions of pounds on what what's being produced it just makes no sense and i know you said the balance sheet's strong but we were both disappointed to see that they'd taken out some debt um yeah in the last earnings True. that was that was a pretty disappointing point why facebook would need to take on debt it's essentially a cash machine um i appreciate advertising is slowing but then you know you adapt to the market don't you rather than taking out pointless debt but um steve anything else you want to add on meta yeah i think you live with that Metaverse feels to me like a very much a 2022 theme. It feels like a very Kathy Wood thing, doesn't it? Where sort of back in 2020, that was happening and we were never going to go to offices again and people would all be driving around in self-driving, well, not driving around, moving around in self-driving cars and so on uh, within the next probably 10 to 15 weeks or something like that. And it turns out none of that has really happened as fast as it was going to. And now in a kind of tighter economic conditions, we look at this stuff with far more suspicion and think, yeah, this is kind of nonsense, isn't it? I mean, people have perfectly serviceable ways. Video conferencing has, has stuck with it pretty well. But most things have kind of gone back to closer to how they were. We haven't had a great kind of COVID reset thing, at least not yet. And the pace of innovation appears to be slower than people thought it was going to be. And if you're in a metaverse losing, uh, a metaverse business that's losing money you've got attached to you, I, as a Facebook holder, would like them to cut that. And I haven't taken that view from the get-go. I've taken the idea this was a kind of necessary evil for making sure that Meta's involved in whatever the next thing is after phones. So they did very well moving from computers to phones, and most people's phones have at least some form of Meta app on them, even Steve's with WhatsApp, I guess. In order to stay relevant after that, I guess that was important. I don't really have that view anymore. I've now shifted to the idea this is just a massive cost that I would like to see them get rid of and they can keep the name Meta Platforms if they like. Just call it something to do with being Meta. That's the big thing, isn't it, as well? Is, you know, you, when you commit to that name change, it says a lot, isn't it, about, you know, if you were to, if Mark Zuckerberg was to come out and say, oh, you know that Metaverse spend that we've been doing, 
um, we're not going to do it anymore. I, I generally think that the share price would shoot up 30% the next day. Um, but when you made such a big commitment with a name change, realistically, is that going to happen? Yeah, and you, your heart goes out to block. Mm. <laughs> I, I thought that was a shock. I could not believe when that, when that came out. I went, no, that no, not block. <laughs> no, it, it was like a late April Fools, wasn't it? And and yes. yet here we are, and the logo is so bad as well. It's just, yeah, it's bad. Yeah. So Steve Steve W, as a Facebook shareholder, uh, where are you at? Hold buy. Buy it. Yep. Still, still happy. Yep. Yeah. I think for me, I took me a little bit to kind of from the recent earnings just to step back and have a look. And I thought at these levels at $120, um, I think it's 11 times earnings right now. Um, I think I can still get my head around the spend. And if they're still putting good single digit amounts of revenue growth and they can start improving that profit a little bit now, I think that I'm still happy here. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's where I am personally as well. Um, so moves on to our, our last topic before we did this call. Um, I asked if you could pick your top three stocks right now. There's a, you know, a lot of opportunity out there. Have you got three stocks that you're staring at and going, that's the one I need to be buying a little bit more than the other ones? Definitely. Uh, so I talked a little bit earlier about positions. I was looking to, to, uh, build out and one of them at the moment is a REIT of mine which I sent down to Steve about uh, three four weeks ago Steve it's a REIT oh, yeah Paul been... quite likes this one he's been looking at it for a while yeah, as well yeah which puts me off it massively but um, <laughs> I have been building a position in it it's uh, called Four Corners Property Trust it's actually a small REIT so only a couple of billion market cap uh, trades under the ticker F FCPT. I was going to do that in um, in phonetics because I've been hanging around my nephew too much. You were going to get fuckapata, but um, <laughs> anyway. So it's a, it's a recent addition for me. Uh, I'm really bullish on the restaurant space in the US. I think it's an affordable luxury that the consumer sticks with over there. Uh, it's uh, like I said, it's a REIT. It primarily owns restaurant buildings. It has some really super customers, uh, such as Olive Garden, KFC, Burger King, uh, Longhorn Steakhouse. Which if we have any uh, fans of Joseph Carlton, they're probably the biggest competitor to Texas Roadhouse uh, and Chili's uh, are some of their customers. So quick stats, 99.8% rent collection at the moment, 99.9% occupancy. Who's that 0.1 who's not paying their bill? Uh, trades at 16 times AFFO, which is adjusted funds from operation, which is a metric you should be using when uh, when uh, valuing a REIT. Um, debt is conservative, large amounts of it hedged at about 2%. It's got nothing due for uh, three years. Average lease length is about nine years. It's all triple net. So that means that all taxes, maintenance, expenses and insurances are the responsibility of the tenant and not four corners. Uh, it's gone from having zero credit rating whatsoever to triple B, which is an investment grade within seven years. Uh, its base rent is growing about 11% compound average growth rate and its base properties are growing about 14% compound average growth rate. And you get a 5.5% dividend while you sit on your ass doing nothing. So it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, a... a it's a re I really like at the moment. Yeah, I just saw that. I saw it with five percent dividend yield, and I thought that's that's quite attractive. It is quite the sit around doing nothing approach, isn't it? It's a triple net one, right? So it's not like the sort of data centers where you have huge maintenance costs or investments or anything like that. Just kick it all out to the others and collect a rent check, basically. That's it. Yeah, essentially. And one of the beauty uh, beauties of this uh, business is essentially they. I, I don't know if you remember uh, when Oliver Garden was, uh, I don't know if it is still publicly traded, but when it was publicly traded, if it has since been bought out. Um, no, Oliver Garden's uh, Darden restaurants, and I think I think the Four Corners lot are about 50% or so Darden Yeah, exactly. Occupied, right? um, yeah, and that's it. And basically, one of, one of the activist investors jumped in and said, like, you guys shouldn't own property. You should be you should be selling it to people and uh, and renting it back from them. And the, the guy who formed Four Corners was basically like, me. Me, <laughs> because like th I think it was like some crazy stat that since like is it like thirty percent of Americans visited an Olive Garden last something year or something like, like that? that. Considering yeah. we don't have them over here, they are huge in America. But exactly. free breadsticks apparently is a thing with them. Yeah, well, I remember um, when Starboard Value took a, they took an interest in it. They wanted them to get rid of the free breadsticks, because they were calling it food waste. <laughs> uh, that was in the three hundred page document that they had. It's like I've never come across an activist investor who's like, stop with the breadsticks, mm -hmm. <laughs> like as if that's what your thesis is built on. But um, yeah, so that, that's basically what happened. Is all of these customers owned this building already? Um, they then got it off their balance sheet and sold it to four, uh, four Corners, who then rented it back to them. It's a 
brilliant business model because you basically have restaurant ready buildings that restaurants are already in you know you get a you get a tenant straight away um I, I, you know, it's a good thing. They're, they're basically diversifying as well now. So they're, they're not just restaurant. They've, they've started to do a bit of veterinary surgeries. They've started to do a little bit of small doctor's surgeries and dentists and things like that. Um, they've got a little bit on the auto centre as well, which I don't like. But they've been actually buying off uh, uh, advanced auto parts, which is a you know fairly decent performing stock over the last 20 years. is a big winner. So they've been doing the same thing with them. The fellow who runs it is a guy called William Lenhan. He's a bit of a re-expert. Um, he's quite regularly on uh, podcasts when somebody wants an overview of REITs. It will be William or Bill, as he's known, uh, who will be delivering the information. So, yeah, I trust him. I think he's a good operator, and I think it's a good REIT. I've seen you've just done a bit of insider buying as well on the 16th of December as well, which is a really positive sign. It wouldn't surprise me. I think he's got a lot of, uh, he, you know, he's got a, he's got his smarts about him. And um, should we go... Steve, do you, do you want to do your first one and then? Sure, yep. I'm looking at things in various different ways in my three. So top of my list is Amazon. It's not particularly complicated as an idea. I'm expecting a recession to come. So if there's a recession coming, you're supposed to get long anything vaguely defensive or utility or REIT or anything like that and short anything cyclical if you do shorts on these kind of things. Uh, Amazon is pretty darn cyclical. It trades at a fairly high PE ratio for reasons that we don't necessarily need to go into, but are largely to do with significant amounts of writing off Rivian investments along the way this year, which has been weighing on their earnings per share. Uh, I think this has a hugely durable competitive advantage. It has a great line into people's houses. It uses that to charge lower prices than other people. I think that will be important going forward in the long term. Thing is down 51% this year. I've owned this for longer than I care to admit because it means I'm down quite a lot on it. I would keep buying the thing here. I think Steve very kindly agreed to get out of my way on this one, because otherwise this might have made his list of three as well. It's not a desperately complicated thesis. There's nothing you don't already know about Amazon if you're listening to this. Buy it. It's going the wrong way in terms of price. I think that will change eventually. Yeah, yeah. I think it's... Um... When you look at some of the big tech that's been absolutely crushed, I think Amazon is at top of quite a few people's shopping list right now. Um, Amazon Web Services alone is very interesting. Uh, I don't know if the day will ever come where they spin that off uh, to to be separate, but yeah, I, I understand that one massively. I guess one final thought. Sorry, Steve, come. I was going to say, from, I think the only reason they would spin that off is from a regulatory point of view, I think, if they yeah. became too too big uh, and they decide they want to spin it off. But we're, we're interested in two sectors of that business. I think Steve's interested in the retail to a degree, but I think we're mostly interested in AWS, which is the only profitable uh, server company. I hear a lot of people talk, say Microsoft Azure. Well, Google have just put out some study today that says Microsoft Azure cannot be profitable. There's no way it can be. So it is, uh, it is only AWS that's actually generating a profit. Uh, and the marketing arm of Amazon, which is something that's just frankly brilliant, they, they, they're barely yeah. they're barely listing any of their own products anymore. They're actually having people pay them to list products on their website and then pay them again to get them in front of the customer's eyes. Uh, it's uh, an incredible uh, it's an incredible business model, really. And I think um, I think we're only going to see Amazon uh, improve from here. I, I think one of the problems we've got with Amazon is that you've got a hell of a lot of growth pulled forward. I mean, it's not often you see a company that goes from 250 billion in revenue to 480 billion in revenue in a year or so. That's, I think you would say that's pretty unheard of. I think it took, I had a look at Walmart and I think it took Walmart about 17 years to do that. So um, for them to do it in essentially 18 months was was kind of crazy to criticize jesse for overbuilding i think that's really unfair as well what was he meant to do he, he his business had just doubled overnight and we're not talking about doubling from you know 100 to 200 million or five pounds to 10 pound we're talking about you know doubling 250 billion of, of excess sales that you've got to somehow house and ship so uh they'll grow into that space so over time i think uh you know they'll, they'll grow into it and they'll reduce it as well is what i think is is we're going to say they'll right size that that property arm and i think that that'll be really good for amazon yeah yeah two from december 2019 280 billion to 502 billion of september the 30th 2022 so it's essentially a, a double <laughs> Yeah, that is a massive increase, isn't it? 
Um, Steve D, you got a second stock? Yeah, my second stocks are going to be, it's probably going to have a couple of guys in your comment section arguing with me, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's going to be Salesforce, which I think is a bit of a okay. sort of crap stock to recommend because uh, it's been battered all year. It's lost its cursey CEO. It's lost some top brass in the C-suite. Uh, I think the uh, one of the leaders or the CEO of Tableau has left. The founder of Slack uh, has left as well. Uh, its margins looks crappy. It looks expensive and it's dilutive. So it's not really a great stock on first glance, but it's going through a bit of a culture change at the moment. And Benioff, uh, probably driven by Starboard's activist intervention, wants a little bit more on the bottom line. So one of the criticisms of Salesforce it has, is it has a bloated workforce. Well, that's getting right size at the moment. They've probably let about 5% go. Uh, it looks like there could be more as well. This will cut the stock-based compensation. This will aid the bottom line. It's actually still growing, which is kind of crazy for Salesforce. I think people don't really realize how big it is. It's at about $31 billion annually. Um, at the uh, is what it's, sorry, what it's estimating for the end of 2023, full year 2023, which will be about 17% growth. And they're targeting $50 billion by 2026. Um, so they're looking for a non-gap op margin of about 25%, which, you know, I hate that, but it's the only metric they're going to give me. This doesn't factor in any M&A that they want to do. Um, so now looks like the time for me to Salesforce to get actually buying stuff. I mean, there's plenty of companies we think could they could bolt onto the offering that are trading at sort of like below COVID lows. So like Salesforce, go get them. Um, and we've got a big buyback coming this year. Salesforce buying back about 10 billion worth of stock. Um, so I think this time next year, you know, you've got the year to accumulate Salesforce. I think they'll look like a much more promising company trading at a much better valuation. Uh, I think the big tenor on story really for them. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that there was, um, a lot of drama with the old Slack CEO moving away a while ago and it did bring that share price just a little bit lower than what had already happened to it. Well, um, the, the Slack CEO is a bit like that. So he has a bit of history. So I'll just give you a quick little bit of history about him. So he formed something called Glitch, I believe it was called, back in the uh, in the early noughties, I think it was. Uh, and he got VC invested. He actually had about 50 million worth of spend. He launched this game. It came out to small critical acclaim and had a small sort of active um, user base. And what actually happened was he sort of realized about two or three days in, he was like, this is never going to make any money. He said, they're like, you know, we've got this money. People are saying, congratulations, it's got off to a good start. But when he was running the numbers, it wasn't going to work. So he basically turned around to the VCs and said, I shut this down. And they were like, what do you mean you're going to shut it down? You know, we've not made a penny. <laughs> you know, you've built this user base. We, we want to build out from here. And he said, look, look, I need to shut it down. It's not going to work. And he yeah. shut down the game because he thought that there was more value in the internal tool system, Slack, which he would uh, they'd been using to chat to each other because it was a it was a, a remote workforce. So he actually went on to develop Salesforce. Uh, sorry, went on to develop Slack, which was then bought by Salesforce for about twenty five billion. So in hindsight, you can say that was probably a pretty good idea. But he, he's never going to be the sort of guy who was going to stay at a massive corporation. He's definitely a builder, and that's what mm -hmm. I would expect him to do. I'd expect him to leave Salesforce, get out of the gardening leave period, and build something new. Mm -hmm. I noticed on a, on an earnings basis, it, it looks expensive at 478, but when you dig into the free cash flow, it's actually pulling off um, around about 5.5 .5 billion in free cash flow. I think analysts are actually expecting that to get to 6.1 billion, and then by 2024, 7.3 billion. Yeah, so, and this is the problem with it. It's very dilutive. Um, so if you take a view of somebody like Amazon, who's been uh, dilutive but has always churned out operating cash flow uh, and which has grown um, quite significantly, and the price has probably tagged that uh, line for, for, for a long period of time. If you take that view with Salesforce, you'll see a much better business than looking at some something like the earnings. Steve and I have this sort of mentality that we don't care about dilution so much, so long as the sort of uh, the the cash flow and the revenue of the business per share is improving faster than the dilution, which mm -hmm. Salesforce is at that kind of pivot point now where it's accelerating away from its dilution because they're going to start doing buybacks. It's going to look even prettier. So I think uh, this is this is a good company. I think uh, it, it's a very overlooked company and uh, and I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Steve W, you got a second one? I felt bad about not having more of an interest in your UK house builders, so I thought I'd try and find you a house builder I'd buy. Um, I <laughs> found uh, NVR, I say I've found, I've known about NVR, which is a US-based house builder uh, for some time now. They do things a little bit differently, and they're one that not a lot of people have, well, uh, a lot of people don't talk about so much, possibly because they don't pay a dividend, which makes them unattractive to a lot of the kind of investors that own 
uh, house builders. But uh, they've market cap about 15 billion. They're down about 20 percent this year. Uh, largely rising interest are going to weigh on mortgage demand. That will slow the house builders. There's a decent chance to try and pick them up here at what I think is a kind of reasonable level. So what they do differently to most house builders is rather than buying land and then going and building houses on it and then trying to flog the houses that they've built, they get options to buy land and take options and work out whether they can sell houses before they go and buy the land in question. So they'll have a right of refusal on something and an option to buy it if they want to, but they'll only build and agree to buy when there's an agreed sale for that thing. So there's no, there's a significantly less of a danger. I guess I should never say no danger of them getting over leveraged by having spent money on land and then having to work out how to flog houses off it. The downside to that is it means that the kind of upside is slightly limited because you have to pay for an option in the first place rather than just buying the land outright that doesn't come off the purchase price you still have to pay full price for it uh there is no dividends i mentioned but they are quite aggressive in buying back shares uh, especially when their share price goes down the last time that most house builders in the u.s were getting into trouble by being over leveraged and things were turning against them nvr just basically bought in a big pile of stock and brought their share count down. Their share count isn't very high, which is why their share price is very high, for what it's worth. I think it's in around the four and a half thousand-ish dollars range. Uh, I kind of like that, for what it's worth. They're not particularly interested in cosmetics. They don't do earnings calls in the way that a Mm. lot of companies do. They get on with things quietly, which is my kind of company, to be honest with you. That's the kind of... I think to myself, if there were... Price agnostic for the moment, about five companies that I was going to buy and keep for life. This would probably be one of them, based on the way that it's run and the way they approach things. They have a much lower risk threshold than the others. I would like this thing. They trade at slightly higher PE than most of the US house builders as a result of this. Uh, This is a case where I would pay up for the quality of the field, at least as I see it. So, NVR, house builder. There you go, just not a UK one. (laughs) You surprised me there because I thought of all the US house builders, it wouldn't be that one. But yeah, interesting choice. Um, so that puts us on number three for um, your third and final pick, Steve D. So I'm going to cheat, um, but I think it's going to be one that you're going to like because I think I've heard you talk about this quite a fair amount as well. So my third one is the S&P Small Cap 600 ETF in whatever flavor you want it to be in. Uh, so nice. small cap values are down about 20% this year. Uh, I was looking at B of A Securities, who reckons it's now trading at about a 30% discount. I'd agree. I had a good look through the top holdings. They all looked fairly well valued to me. So normally you'd head to the Russell 2000 for small cap cover- uh, coverage, but with interest rates high and time value of money uh, kind of thing. Uh, I don't want all of the unprofitable ones yet. Uh, so I just want the S&P small cap 600. This is the best index to get broad-based access to an index filled with profitable-only small caps. So I actually own this one. I've got, uh, I've only got a couple of shares at the moment on this. Uh, it's one of the things I'm looking to build into over the next year. Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. I've actually considered personally um, picking up the Russell, which obviously has a few more unprofitable companies in than the S&P 600. But yeah, it's something that's actually really interested me. I've never, I've always been focused on individual stocks, but I look at that one and I'm just trying to look now on a Ford P basis for the, I'm just, I was just trying to get it up then when you were talking, but if I remember correctly, it is either at the same level it was in the peak of that 2008 crash, or it might be even slightly lower, which shows you how beaten down that is. Yeah. And this is the thing with all, all if you want small cap exposure with uh, and, and obviously a dividend as well, I guess is, is always handy to have from this kind of thing. Um, this is the best ETF to, to pick it. it. It's sorted through all the crap for you rather than you having to, you know, pick a profitable small cap and put your, like, put your money into it. This just gives you broad based access to all of them. And, uh, it's got pretty good historic performance. If it can, if that can continue, well, that would be really good. Good stuff. And that leaves us with Steve W, your third and final pick. Yeah, I felt bad about not being more interested in your African-based FTSE uh, listed stock earlier. <laughs> so here's an African-based FTSE listed stock that I would probably buy at the moment. Companies called Endeavour Mining has a market cap of 1.4 billion, that's in pounds. The thing is actually up uh, this year by about 8%, which makes it a less obvious screaming candidate to have a go at here. But this is a gold mining company. They own and they operate mines across Western Africa. So what does that mean? We're tied to the price of gold. They, and it's basically a race then to see who can get it out the ground cheapest. And in Africa, 
Labour comes fairly cheap, uh, so costs for extraction are fairly low for this company. It has an all-in sustaining cost of around $779 per ounce. Uh, the price of gold is, I think, just over twice that at the moment. I actually think the gold price is going to hold up fairly well in 2023. I heard Demodoran saying the other day that if you don't trust share prices to hold up, then you go and run into stuff like gold. I suspect that's probably true. People were, are going to think that things that generate cash flows are going to generate worse cash flows. I expect share prices to fall. I expect gold to hold up well as people run in that direction. And that means good things for this company, which is basically trying to sell gold. There's some fairly obvious risks here, some of which Steve mentioned with Airtel Africa. Uh, but there's always kind of political risk with these businesses. And that's the general sort of shape of the um, investment thesis here. I quite like this as a gold miner. It's a low cost one. It's, I think, got a brightish future as the gold price holds fairly well, even if it comes off a bit, to be honest. It's a fairly low cost kind of operation. So... Uh, Endeavour Mining would be my kind of alternative to Airtel Africa. You don't get the same kind of growth in that 3G is less relevant when you're pulling minerals out the ground, or metals in this case. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that Africa's economy mostly is known for at the moment, right? It's a growing, developing market, and most of what they do at the moment, I think, is, yeah, pull stuff out of the ground. Mm -hmm. Is the ticker symbol for that one EDV? Yes. Yes, yeah. It, it definitely, I don't know, you might know what this is, but... It's had some sort of explosion through 2020 into 2021. I'm just staring at the financials right now. Uh, oh, Christ, I didn't look that up carefully enough. I'll put you on the spot there. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't looked at this particularly carefully. It's one that I don't own yet. It's one that's on my list to have a look more closely at. But my thought is if looking for a gold miner and looking for a low-cost gold miner, I'd be going that way. Uh, they've been opening mm -hmm. more and more mines, for one thing. That's probably something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Well... I've kept you long enough. Um, I think we must be pushing over towards an hour-ish now. Mm. So um, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks for joining and doing this today. It's something that I've wanted to do for a while. It's a podcast you guys that I listen to um, every week as well. So, um, yeah, it's been great. No, thanks Pleasure. for having us, mate. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Great stuff. Thank you so much.